Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome to another special release of Investor Stories. On this installment, the experts discuss a startup that they did invest in, what the key factors were that led to yes, and how that investment has worked out. Here's the segment called Why I Invested. Welcome back to TFR. Today, we're doing a special installment of Why I Invested, featuring founder Rich Stokes of Winston. Winston is launching a Kickstarter campaign here on May 21st, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, We also have Joe Dwyer of Founder Equity, one of our key co-investors in the deal. Guys, welcome to TFR. Thanks, Dick. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Rich, let's start out with you. Can you uh, walk us through your background and, and what led to sort of the, the launch of Winston? Yeah, so I'm an engineer by training, went to U of I. Uh, I spent 14 years in the ad tech industry, though, and I am also a serial entrepreneur. I founded uh, my last company, Ad Guru, in 2004. Uh, eight years later, sold it to the world's largest advertising agency. And that was in 2012. And so I stayed on with them for you know, over four years. I became the global head of innovation for their media intelligence division. And it was in that role that I saw the rise of increasingly disturbing technologies that were surveilling consumers, yep. um, many of which probably shouldn't be, be legal, but they are. So that inspired me to dig deeper into this problem space. I ended up leaving the ad tech industry in late 2017. And then I started at Winston. And the rest is history. Awesome. And and Joe, can you give us a sense for, for your background and, and maybe give us an overview of Founder Equity? Sure. So I'm a serial entrepreneur as well, uh, 25 years in. And I uh, kind of re- I semi-retired in the early 2000s after the dot bomb, got bored, went back and got a JD MBA and, and uh, added venture capitalists to my list. Um, I started about 10 years ago. I also teach at Kellogg, teach innovation and entrepreneurship. And as for Founder Equity, we are in a, a new approach to venture capital. We make uh, seed and early stage investments in technology and technology-enabled businesses. We're based here in Chicago. We have offices in Dallas, Los Angeles, and uh, Columbus, Ohio as well. And I guess one, we're unusual in that we don't charge fees. And uh, the rest of it is a uh, Sort of a, a thread, if it gets pulled, would get far too complicated for this discussion. Got it. No fees at all. So management fees or carry? No management fees whatsoever. 
and our carry is technically we don't have carry, although we we effectively do. Our our fund is just unusually structured. It's closer to a co-investment vehicle than anything else. But again, that, that that's a that's an that's a thread that once you pull it could could <laughs> require thirty minutes of conversation to explain. Yeah, yeah, sure. We do some some co-investment here at at Newstack as well with our our fund and syndicate. Um, but let's go back to Rich. So we're here to talk about Winston, uh, one of the more exciting technology companies that I've experienced coming out of any geography. You know, it was a pleasure to get connected with you early on it. But um, can you start off with just like a one-liner description of Winston? Yeah, Winston is a small hardware device that you plug into your home network, and within 60 seconds, it encrypts, anonymizes, and accelerates your internet. Got it. And and why is that important? You know, give us more of a sense for what is the problem here and, and how is Winston positioned to address that? Yeah, well, so there are hundreds of companies out there, just like Cambridge Analytica, which are stalking us. We don't let people, you know, peep through our windows, yet we're letting them peep through our routers at us. And so these companies are surveilling us, recording our online activities. They're storing it forever, buying, selling, trading it, profiting off of our data off of our life experience, off of our kids even, right? More insidiously, you know, this is not just a annoyance. It's also fairly dangerous from a uh, political, from philosophical, from legal um, perspectives as well, as recent news will attest. You know, as an example, this data has been and is continues to be used to influence our behavior and our voting patterns. So most people are now aware this is a serious problem. But what's really interesting is that Pew... Um, has done a study which they've updated over the years. And the latest one that I had access to indicated that 61% of internet users say they would do something to stop this if they could, if they only knew how. And so uh, that's where Winston comes in. Winston's an easy-to-use and a comprehensive privacy solution that doesn't require a computer science degree. You just plug it in and it starts working. So most people have had some exposure to the news on this. And I think we're, we're all familiar with Cambridge Analytica at this point, but who are some of the biggest violators out there? Well, you know, Facebook's been all over the news. Um, Google's actually a much larger surveiller, you know, so I don't have the exact stats at the tip of my fingers, um, but I believe Facebook has a reach somewhere around 60 to 65% of the internet. Google's considerably higher than that, 75 to 80% of memory serves. And so what that means is where these companies talk about protecting your data, what they don't talk about is the two the two thirds of the problem, which is how they're getting it in the first place. And so what they're doing is they have very clever ways of watching what you're doing wherever you're wherever you go. And for the most part, these companies are capable of completely recreating your browser history, everything you do online from not just your browser, but also your devices, what you're watching, who's in your home, and so on. Um, so it's really become this digital surveillance state, which is completely out of control and in the hands of the tech giants. Yeah, some of the videos you've you've sent me over time are are frightening. And since then, I've noticed, you know, just having a conversation at home with my wife about where we're going on vacation or, uh, you know, what we might like to have for dinner. All of a sudden, you pull out your smartphone and... You've got ads, ads served up for exactly what we were just talking about, which is uh, that's right. It's it's pretty scary. It's pretty alarming. Yeah, yeah. There's there's been some sort of 
apologism at work, you know, particularly with the media, you know, some of these companies will go and research it and, you know, they're not tech people. So they sort of do the obvious uh, ways of investigating. And they conclude, Hey, you know, they're just really, really smart uh, at modeling you. And if, even if you take that at face value, what it means is actually worse, it has worse implications than if they were just simply listening on our microphones. What it means is that they're capable of taking all this data that we leave online and modeling our personalities and our minds digitally. If we believe them, they, they say they're not recording us, it means that they're capable of actually predicting and influencing our behavior in very subtle, insidious ways. Well, and to some degree, in a previous life, weren't you sort of a part of this this data engine, creating these profiles of consumers? Well, so not directly. So yes, in a way. Um, so I was employed by a very large part of the advertising ecosystem. But my former company actually spied on Google, right? And that was very uh, ironic in a big sense because Google very much enjoys their privacy. And they did not like us knowing what they were doing uh, and disclosing to other people. So they took, you know, a lot of evasive action to prevent us from surveilling them, which is a delicious irony. <laughs> it was in my later role, though, that I began looking at other companies in the advertising ecosystem, startups at the time, which some of which had become massive. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was their technologies and their innovation that was really scary. Right. Agreed. And so you and I have had a lot of deep discussions about, you know, what's the best way to address this problem, right? What's the best instantiation or type of product to deliver a solution that, you know, can compel consumers? Can you tell us what the Winston product is uh, fundamentally? And, you know, what's the tech inside of Winston that helps prevent against this surveillance? Yeah, so Winston brings together a slew of technologies into a simple form factor that you don't have to think too much about. So at the base level, it's got network-level privacy protection. Essentially, what it's doing is it's, it has a list of sites, uh, known tracking sites that we block. It also analyzes your uh, activity on your devices in real time. It will modify your security policies to make it harder for companies that we're not familiar with or websites that we're not familiar with to track you. It then encrypts everything that you're doing or re-encrypts at many cases in AES-128. And then here's the beautiful thing. We don't use VPNs in any way. We have no centralized network. Rather, the Winstons themselves form a peer-to-peer -peer or what we call privacy mesh network. And each Winston will pair up with about 30 other Winstons every 10 minutes and randomly route your internet through those other 30 devices, scrambling their data with yours and vice versa. Um, and that ends up uh, making it extremely difficult to figure out what's happening on your network with any degree of confidence. Yeah. So you're talking about this mesh network and I think we've, some of us have had experience with VPNs or using, you know, Tor browsers, um, a variety of different technologies to, to try and prevent spying, but there's often an internet drag, you know, there's a lot of wait time, a lot of clocking, with, with VPNs and, and with these other technologies. Do you avoid that or, or how can you avoid that with this, you know, what seems like a complex mesh network? Yeah, so that was, that was actually a consequence of, you know, different thinking about the privacy problem. You know, the historical stance on privacy has been what I call the academic model. You can think of privacy as a chain. 
Um, and if any of the links break, the academics and security research will say, well, this is useless from a privacy perspective. And it's true for the use case that privacy is traditionally being considered to be uh, applicable against. You know, So, for instance, if you're a journalist in a pressed regime and you're trying to get information out, that is true. What we uncovered in our research, though, pretty early on was that there was this new model of consumer privacy, and it was really different. It wasn't this chain model. It was more death by a thousand cuts. And so from that standpoint, there is no really a need for perfect privacy because the fact is most people don't have anything to hide, right? They just mm-hmm. don't want to leave their data out for anybody to investigate, right? Or to, to, to gather. And so what that made possible was our model, which is you can kind of think of it like Tor for normal people, right? You just plug this Winston in, you know, your entire internet is taken care of. It's scrambled. Is it going to keep the NSA out? Um, probably not. You know, if the government really wants you, they got back doors and pretty much every technology they can get in there. Mm-hmm. They don't have anything in ours, but what it's going to do is it's going to dramatically heighten your privacy and your security stance for your entire network. Right. Right. And you've experienced even some improvements in internet speed so far. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. So we block on average, we block around 45% of all data transmission on your network. And that all that 45%, almost half of our internet usage is being used to track, track us and service ads. When you take that out, it's not just a matter of getting more bandwidth. It's actually your computers, your mobile devices, they have to do a lot less work, right? Because there's less contention for resources. So there's less battery drain on your mobile devices, for instance. Um, your browser works a lot faster because it's now focusing all of its power on serving up just the essential parts of the web pages as opposed to all the bloat. So in essence, even though we do introduce uh, on average around 40 seconds, 40 milliseconds of latency, the net effect on browsing speed is dramatically faster. Yeah, I've been shocked to see the uh, the speed increases so far on on some of the early units. Um, let's, let's touch on the market quick and then we're going to jump over to Joe. So uh, tell us who, you know, who's the prototypical, ideal customer, and uh, what does this market look like? Yeah, so we're targeting existing VPN users, uh, especially people who use VPNs professionally, for instance, for work-related purposes. Um, These are individuals who are generally more educated about privacy and security. So our research indicates that the purchase intent with this group is about five times higher than the general population, which is great news for us. But what's even better is a massively growing market. According to both our research as well as numbers that were recently published by VPN Mentor, VPN usage is up by 400% since 2016. And in 2018 alone, that's 165% growth. So the the market is just large and rapidly growing, you know, wildly underserved. And these are people electing into a VPN themselves. They're not required to use a VPN for work. Well, it doesn't. It includes really everybody. Um, people who use VPNs personally, as well as people who are required to use it for work. Now, what's interesting about that is when we went into this, our hypothesis was that the people who are using VPNs personally were going to be our core market, and it turned out the purchase attempt was actually much higher with people who are using VPNs for work-related reasons. We can hypothesize about why that is, but we have the data to back it up, and it does show that people who are using VPNs professionally are much more likely to buy Winston. Got it. I, I do want to dig deeper, a little bit deeper on Winston, but um, let's move over to Joe. Uh, Joe, can you take us back to sort of your first meeting with Rich 
and uh, you know your initial thoughts and reactions. Uh, sure, but it'll it'll be a little un, un, a flip around in an unusual uh, a turn of events. So uh, in this case, Rich met first with one or two members of our team, including uh, one of my partners, Matt, who is our effectively also our chief technology officer. We have a pretty big crew of engineers, designers, etc. And so Matt met with Rich first, and Matt Matt tends to be very good at identifying flaws or or risks in businesses, right? And particularly good at, at identifying flaws that are technology and technology business model related. And you know he walked out of that meeting, and my first recollection was not so much of seeing Rich. I just saw Rich walking out the door, right, the first time around. Was him walking over to me and saying, "We're going to do this investment," and that is so far removed from Matt's <laughs> normal behavior that it was shocking, right? And I said, oh, I, I just looked at him, I said, okay, because I, I figured if, if he liked it that much, you know, right off the get-go, that there was probably something really substantial there. And so my later, you know, interactions with Rich were, were you know, colored by that. So we kind of came in, we came in strong. Uh, more specifically, what I thought when I first saw this and saw Rich and the team was extraordinarily talented people who are very driven, but also very humble, who I can't imagine many people in the world who, who understand both the technology and, and the, you know, the market and the industry, as well as Rich and his team do. And I, in the meantime, was being told by our uh, engineers and data scientists that this was absolutely the best tech that they'd seen out there for this. Nothing they'd seen out there was like this. These guys are legitimate uh, they were building a, a, a very well-engineered, very, very secure and very, you know, effective technology. And, you know, th that's not always what you see. I mean, even even some of the best technology teams will come in with, you know, half-baked stuff that you, you have to understand, you know, and predict that they're going to be able to make it work better, et cetera. No, we were, they were very impressed with that. And so, you know, the, the, initial, the initial response was, this is a fantastic team with fantastic technology. And very importantly for us, you know, this aligns uh, very closely to some trends that we've been observing in the industry that we were interested in. We were actively looking for an investment that sort of checked this box. Uh, because one of, the, one of the things we're very aware of, and I think the market is becoming increasingly aware of, is that VPNs don't work, right? Mm -hmm. At least not mm -hmm. in the way people think that they do. They, their privacy is, is, is not only not provided, you know, by using a VPN. You don't, you don't get the privacy you think you get using a VPN. It, it's worse in that the VPN providers, in some cases, are either bad actors and unfortunately are in a position to see everything that you do, right, uh, if you're using a third-party provider. And, and even if they're not a bad actor, they're also a potential single point of failure, where if they get hacked, uh, all of your information suddenly becomes available. And there's a particular risk that, you know, if you're, if you're using a VPN, you know, you, you, you may have a heightened sensitivity, you know, work-related or, or, or for whatever reason, and you may behave differently, figuring that, you, you know, you don't have to worry about, about people being able to access your information, which is just not the case. And so as, as this becomes more and more sort of well-known, we knew there would be a, uh, an increasing market for it. And then, again, our hypothesis is that very large companies have to buy these disruptive uh, companies such as Winston because they're not in a position in most cases to build these technologies or business models themselves. It's mm -hmm. part of what I teach at, at Kellogg is why big companies have so much trouble doing this. Anyway, and so I could make a long list. I won't do it here because I don't, I don't want to you know, 
spoil the spoil the party, but uh, a big list of of large acquirers who will have to own Winston, and uh, we we foresee a fight over it in the future because it is so far ahead in terms of technology, uh, and will probably be so far ahead in terms of market and scale. We think there will be a a pretty significant fight over it at some point. Could make a good case study on on the innovator's dilemma at some point, Joe. <laughs> sure. I mean, so you're 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 dealing with some lar- very large tech companies whose entire business model is dependent on on violating privacy. Yep. And what do they do about it? Um, you have do they maybe buy Winston at some point and and own it for real, or more likely you have a large company that wants to own privacy for real would purchase Winston, you know, make it that much bigger and leverage a business model that's differentiated. So for example, Apple has much less of an interest in uh, violating people's privacy than Google or Facebook or some of the other players due to the nature of their business model. Now it's evolving a bit and that that could change, but uh, there are definitely some big players who, who probably would recognize the value of a Winston for their business models and frankly as a bit of a spoiler for their competitors business models. Yep, yep. What hesitations if any did you have? So, you know, we had to take a leap of faith because while the 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 code was the code and the logic were were well formed, it was not a final product. The hardware was not made at the time and uh, we were investing uh, in a business that was to a certain extent pre-product and definitely pre-revenue. And so that's a big leap of faith for any investor. You have to really believe in the team and the opportunity. And so we, you know, that that obviously was something that that we looked at pretty hard. I will say that one of the things that was so impressive about the team and, and Rich is that they, they had such a well thought out and comprehensive set of information for us to review. It was well organized, thorough. It was very transparent. It was very data-driven, which is very much how we, we think and operate. And you could look at, the, at the, the data room that he provided and have great confidence that they had at least considered all the important parts and, frankly, had already proven to a certain level of satisfaction that some of the risks were manageable and they turned certain uncertainties into risks. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot, a lot of uncertainty and risk that we were dealing with. We always do. That's part of our job. Uh, but Rich and his team had eliminated so much of it so thoroughly that it gave us a lot of confidence that they'd continue to eliminate or, or reduce risks. And sure enough, they have. So yeah, we've been very, very pleased with how things are going. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, switching back over to Rich here. Rich, why the decision to launch this as a hardware device You know, that sits between the modem and the router um, in somebody's home, for example? Uh, you know, Why the decision to do that instead of a a software implementation of Winston? Well, I'd like to say we used to watch TV. Now our TVs are watching us. It's the biggest wiretap in our homes. Ad blockers, VPNs, other privacy technologies, software, you know, they tend to be a little bit on the complicated side. They certainly require a little bit of effort. And they generally only work on a single device or browser. Now, from my past experience, I knew that most consumer spying was taking place on other connected devices. So Winston had to be a hardware device so it could operate at the network level and protect the entire home. Got it. So it's not just my PC, right? It's every IoT device or every sensor in the house that has some some surveillance coverage? That, that's right. I mean, this uh, you plug it in, your, your Nest 
is protected, your digital scale is protected. Like my digital scale is trying to constantly track my location, which is funny. Uh, doesn't really <laughs> need to know that, you know, and really the obvious reason that it's doing this because they want to indicate uh, and sell this data to other people in the advertising ecosystem. They want to know when you're home, right? And that's a valuable piece of information. So yeah, Winston protects all of them. Great. And then why the decision to go B2C instead of B2B? I know that there was some pushback on that early and um, there may be some folks that think this is a stronger B2B play, but why, why go consumer? Yeah, as a startup, it's important that we learn quickly. And this requires rapid iterations of our marketing tactics as well as our technology. And B2C is ideal for that. So we've been able to get our product in the hands of a substantial number of paying customers in a wide variety of uh, networks with many different devices, most of which we, most of uh, those devices we've never seen before and have never tested in our labs. We did all that in less than 18 months, you know, from inception to now. And their feedback has been absolutely essential in improving the product. So we couldn't have done that with a B2B model where the sales cycle is 18 months. And that's if you have a pretty well-developed technology to begin with. So it was a matter of practicality. Um, additionally, B2C is a heck of a lot more fun. In my, my experience, I've done both. And I think the potential upside dwarfs the B2B market. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Yeah, you know, the decision to go consumer, it it relates to kind of our process uh, of engagement at Newstack. And while I'm sitting here pummeling you guys with questions, I should probably talk a bit about, you know, how we connected and how we got to a decision and ultimately, you know, led your first round. But it's funny, you know, this this actually started with at a barbecue in my neighborhood, which is like the ultimate place where you do not want to get startup referrals. You know, when the neighborhood friend is rubbing elbows with you, drinking a beer and saying, hey, I know this startup that you got to connect with. Um, <laughs> that's kind of where, you know, you roll your eyes and and you hope that they never follow up. But in this instance, you know, my neighbor Mike uh, linked me up with uh, our mutual friend now, Jerry Paez. And uh, Jerry said, you know, I know this this founder who's pretty exceptional and you should meet him. So... You know, I'm glad he set up that meeting. And quite honestly, Rich, I think the first time we got together, it was so early 
Um, you had this breadboard, you know, really early prototype, but you were pretty compelling. The tech was super interesting. You were compelling. Clearly, you know, you'd thought about this problem domain uh, more so than than anybody I had ever had exposure to. Um, and the only issue was that it was it was very early in sort of the the prototype development stage. And here's the thing, you know, the other red flags with a company like Winston, I mean, you were building hardware, right? A box that goes between the modem and the router. It was consumer focused. You were planning to launch the consumer. And it was also pre-launch and pre-revenue. And those are like the three biggest red flags that, you know, most investors shy away from. I would imagine that at least eight out of 10 of the investors that are in my network don't do any consumer, don't do any hardware. And don't touch anything that's pre-launch and pre-revenue. And so, you know, while you were super compelling, I don't think, you know, we were ready to do something on on day one. And fortunately for me, you know, you kept in touch and you you followed through at a level that we don't see entrepreneurs follow through. The degree of resourcefulness, the degree of tenacity, your authentic connection with this problem, your background and your ability to solve it. I think we were talking at least once a, a week by email, probably twice, and every few weeks by phone for about eight months. And uh, it's really nice for us as investors when we have that opportunity, uh, when we have an opportunity to get to know someone during those early stages when they're developing a product, putting together the vision, constructing a commercial plan, and uh, executing. And not just executing, but actually over-delivering. You know, I don't want to stroke your ego too much, but I, I remember giving you or asking you questions or saying, you need to pressure test this or that, and uh, routinely you come back with more progress than, than we see out of, out of founders, to be honest. So, you know, over that eight-month period, Newstack definitely got signal on this deal. You know, we were proud to kind of lead the deal and put together a round and find some other good strategic partners, uh, like the folks at, at Founder Equity, of course. But, you know, it, it took a while, but your ability to kind of validate the market opportunity, define your beachhead customer, um, set the brand and the messaging, uh, prove you could build fully functioning hard tech, uh, create that design and the form factor that's consumer facing, you know, that's, that's pretty big when you're doing a consumer product. This was one of you know the more exciting opportunities I've been involved in, and there was no hesitation to to partner with you as an investor when the time was right, when the questions were answered. So, yeah, well, that's that's great. I mean, it's been definitely quite a journey. You certainly got to see how the sausage is made. Uh, <laughs> a lot, a lot of work, and you know, small incremental pivots. And you know, many decisions were made along that process. So. Uh, you can attest more than anybody what you saw at the beginning was certainly not what came out of the end of that process. Um, and so that was just, that was really awesome to, to go through. Agreed. And I think the vision from the beginning was was really compelling and your ability to kind of find, you know, the the approach that, that ultimately is is working is kind of a testament to you as a founder. But, you know, I also want to kind of get your take. So, uh, once we launched the price round and once we decided to lead, there was there were a lot of folks that were interested in the deal. There were, if I recall correctly, there were a couple firms that may have suggested that you bump us aside and let them take the entire 
uh, round of capital. First of all, you know, thanks for the loyalty. Uh, but can you quickly tell us how you chose to partner with both Newstack and and Founder Equity? Yeah, so I come from a place of deep skepticism of VCs, and as a serial entrepreneur, I well, I guess I have the luxury now of having a strict no a hole policy, both personally <laughs> and professionally. So, you know, one thing I noticed with you right away, Nick, was that, you know, you challenged assumptions in a very thoughtful manner, but you didn't come in with preconceived notions, right? You didn't say, well, this is the answer and you just have to find something that fits this, like I've seen in the past with other investors who come in with their assumptions, right, from past experience. And, you know, the market's constantly changing and we're trying to react and sense and probe the market and find new opportunities that we can exploit faster than anybody else. So, you know, that's really kind of a key thing. You have to come in and be able to challenge these assumptions, both that investors have as well as my own. So your stance was really helpful. You came in as a skeptical but constructive partner and you weren't working, you know, from a hidden agenda. So now, you know, Joe, Joe is kind of a unicorn among investors because he he comes from a place where he's got this deep appreciation of tech and his mind moves really fast. So there have been a couple of meetings where you know I'm laying down our findings and Joe just kind of jumps to the finish line. He's like, right to, to the correct conclusions be- almost before I can finish you know, my sentence. <laughs> and so that, that background aligns him really well philosophically with technical founders. And so when you layer on top of that, this deep understanding of the investment landscape, certainly you know, an area which I don't really know that well, it's exactly the kind of complementary skill set you need on your investment team. Love it. Joe, any any comments about sort of your engagement with Rich and uh, you know, his decision to to work with you guys? Uh, I I guess uh aside from saying that um we're really <laughs> pleased that he chose to and we know he had a choice, you know, with feelings mutual. We we like working with smart, industrious, thoughtful people. We're very, you know, comfortable with technology and we we very much appreciate people who truly understand it. And that's definitely all true for Rich and his team. And, and we're very pleased with the progress and look forward to, to continuing to work with, with all of you guys. It's been, a, it's been a great run so far, and I think it's just going to get better. Yeah. So, Rich, what, what is the current status? Where are you guys at today, uh, you know, since the funding round? And uh, what's next? Yeah. So I'm really proud of how far we, we've come you know, hardware has this natural moat around it, but there's a huge amount of risk for hardware startups, you know, as they go from concept to all the way to the later stages, building out their supply chain. And a good percentage of hardware startups fail in these stages, typically due to design or production issues, you know, um, overruns, mistakes, just issues. You know, we, we ran into things like anodization where we couldn't get the polish of the units right, which set us back a month. Uh, you know, that's inevitable, but we were really fortunate to have great partnerships with both with M-Hub here in Chicago, the hardware accelerator, as well as Minimal, the industrial design agency, also here in Chicago, one of the best in the country, if not the world. And they helped us to avoid many, many potholes, which had we not been partners with them, I'm, I'm sure would have stalled us. So as an example, you know, we were able to get a looks like prototype completed about four months after our pre-seed round closed. And July, I think maybe even three months. It was September, October, I think, when I first pulled out the polished prototype and started showing that off. So it then took us another six months to get a small production run completed. Those were shipped to paying field trial users 
then we have you know a bunch of units out in the field right now which are working great but we're, you know we're collecting feedback and improving on that as well so now we're in the process um here's the big milestone for us we're in the process of scaling production uh we have three thousand units currently in various stages of assembly which will start shipping to our kickstarter backers as early as july um, so based on that based on our success there i anticipate that we'll be looking at the next price round to begin um, scaling up our operations probably by the summer. So the Kickstarter is uh, May 21st. Is that right? That's right. Just a few days, about a week from now. You know, I think every entrepreneur that's probably listening is asking the question, you know, why do the Kickstarter? I've had a number of hardware founders that have kind of been on the the fence with that decision. Can you, can you talk about how you decided to uh, do the crowdfunding campaign? Yeah, I'll tell you what, it's like walking a tightrope. Um, Many hardware startups do Kickstarters too early. They don't have a good handle on their cost, their supply chain, and they underestimate pricing and how long it's going to take. And this really hurts them and even drives many of them out of business. So doing a Kickstarter too early is a really bad idea. You know, a successful Kickstarter at those early stages can actually put you out of business. So then the question becomes, well, should you do a Kickstarter? And if so, when? And for us, you know, that was a matter of, look, we have a really small team at this point. Certainly, not a, we're not staffed up enough yet to be a standalone scalable business. So for us, the milestone is, okay, can we prove out enough people want the solution and we're delivering both on the product as well as the value proposition where this has a lot of runway ahead of it. Um, and so for, for us, the Kickstarter is a cost-effective and finite campaign that we could do, which will generate enough quantifiable data to prove out the demand and set us up for a larger scaling round so we can go to the next level. Got it. And how many units do you think do you think you'll be prepared to to ship this year? Well, really uh we're prepped now at the point where we can ship pretty much anything we can sell on Kickstarter. So certainly we have 3000 right now um, which will be ready to ship on the low end. If we were to sell 10,000 on Kickstarter, we could get that out by the end of the year as well. So, and that's because of the fact that we've gotten through all those scaling pains and now it's just a matter of, you know, dialing up or dialing down production as needed. We just have to tune it. Got it. Well, if you're in the audience listening to this and you're interested in the Kickstarter, I'll make sure to include a link on the website. Uh, just go to fullratchet.net and you'll find uh, the episode there as well as the links. Guys, uh, this is a real pleasure. I look forward to doing an update in a couple of years and hearing how things progress for Winston. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks a bunch. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. That will conclude this installment of Investor Stories. If you're enjoying the program and would like to see it continue, take a moment and leave a five-star review in iTunes. Also, if you'd like updates on new content from TFR, as well as the top 10 VC articles every week, go to fullratchet.net and sign up for the newsletter. Okay, that will wrap things up for today. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining me.